Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. In South Dakota, hunting is our shared legacy, something everyone can be a part of. That's why we're focused on making our fields a welcome place for everyone. See how at HuntTheGreatestSD.com, where you can hear stories from sportswomen and learn what makes South Dakota the world's pheasant capital. While you're there, check out public land maps, hunting blogs, and season information for one unforgettable fall. Learn more at HuntTheGreatestSD.com. But hunting to me is, is really about that becoming one with the environment, becoming one with where you're at. And that's where even the processing or eating it to me is the closing of the circle. Welcome back to another episode of Woods and Waters Project Podcast. That was Rick Carey, CEO of Chard Products that we just heard from and we're going to hear from today. This is such an inspiring interview that goes multiple directions and I'm so excited you guys are here to meet Rick. We're talking meat processing, how to get started doing it yourself, but we talk about so much more than that. We talk about grouse hunting, we talk about road travel and adventure and being a steward of time and how we are part of something so much bigger than ourselves when it comes to the outdoor world and passing it on and why it's important. Absolutely loved this conversation. Everybody meet Rick Carey. Welcome back to another episode of Woods and Waters Project Podcast. I'm your host, Steph, and this week we have Rick Carey with Chard Products, and I am so excited to like, oh my gosh, I'm doing it again, Rick. I'm stuttering my words, and I can't (laughs) say deep dive at all for some reason, but Rick Carey is here with Chard Products, and we're going to talk a little bit about him and his story and we're going to get into some meat processing conversation, which we have never covered in the podcast before. So I think Rick's our guy. So Rick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Steph. And I'm going to try to work in deep dive through our conversation today, just anywhere <laughs> I can. So <laughs> perfect. Yeah. And, you know, always, uh, if it works out where there's a lot of conversation we don't cover and we feel like we need to come back into it, we can do a part two and we'd be happy to have happy to have you again so just based on our conversation you and I have offline I feel like we have a lot to talk about um so I'm I'm super excited for our guests that are listening Rick can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do uh sure and thanks for having me uh my name is Rick Carey I'm the president of the Metalwork Corporation and we own uh Chard and Chard is kind of my brand that I developed uh years ago and if you're curious Chard really comes from the last part of Richard. Uh, so if you spell out Richard, you'll see Chard is at the end. Um, I'm actually a Richard Carey Jr. So my dad was a senior. And uh, to differentiate us, I went by Chard or Chardy. 
uh, was my nickname. So that's kind of where Chard comes from, is last part of that. Awesome. Uh, so I, I started that brand. You know, it's kind of funny because in today's age, when you try to start a brand or, you know, one of the first things you do is like, just go out and look for websites, like what's taken, what's available. And Chard was unique enough that I was able to do it. Of course, there's Swiss Chard, which is like my competitor on, on websites, but I was able to find uh, you know, available website. I thought this is a cool brand. Uh, the, the, you know, the name makes sense. And uh, so I developed it from there back uh, really about 2009 time period was where I started that. And I'd already been kind of in the industry and, and, and my background was uh, I, I started at this company. I um, was actually a lawyer. Uh, my background was as general counsel, but I'd grown up hunting, fishing and, and doing these things. And I was trying to get a sort of a whole understanding of the company, the holistic approach to it. And I took on this one category, which was outdoor products. They had a brand called Open Country, which had been in the camping world for many, many years. And I had been at huge outdoor camping, lightweight camping, trail, through trails, uh, you know, through hikes. I really was a big part of my life. So I was already an outdoors person. And we developed this brand. And it was about the same time that chronic wasting disease or CWD, I uh, kind of really started in the Colorado area out West and it was migrating eastward and really impacting the whitetail population. But the, the real issue was a lot of your smaller butcher shops were no longer going to be processing because of the regulatory aspects that came in. They weren't going to process venison anymore. And so we saw this developing need for game processing equipment. Nobody was really in the space. Uh, I would say a lot of people took it, you know, to, to a butcher or to a processor. Uh, in my background, I'm actually from the UP of Michigan. So I grew up in a very rural area. Uh, my family did a ton of hunting. We had a potato farm or my extended family potato farm. We would get nuisance tags. So it was pretty common for us collectively as a family to take anywhere, anywhere between 10 and 15 deer a year. And then we had almost assembly lines of processing where, you know, we would probably, it would usually be Thanksgiving day uh, would be like the end of the day would be starting the processing and we process all day on Black Friday. For us, Black Friday just meant that we were processing deer. Uh, so that was like our, our thing. And I just kind of, you know, growing up, you sort of assume that that's how everybody grows up. Like all of us, we think that, you know, our little world is extended out to the rest of the world. And I kind of assumed everybody did it that way. And I realized later on, especially when I got into the industry, that I had a pretty unique experience in what I had done and the, you know, what I'd learned and what I knew about, you know, processing. So it was kind of neat because I turned out I, I was an expert and didn't even know it. Uh, but I started looking at what it would take to, you know, basically have a, a line of products that could allow your everyday person to come in and learn how to do game processing and do it right safely and cost effectively was probably the most important thing because like our, even our own family or other families, really what they were doing is buying commercial equipment, usually used commercial equipment. And it would still be, like, I remember us as a family buying a grinder. It was like a thousand dollars for a used Hobart grinder. And it was just cost prohibitive for most people to be able to get into it. So we developed grinders, slicers, dehydrators for making jerky seasonings. And we started developing all this product that basically allowed somebody to go out and process their own, their own game. It wasn't just venison, but that was a big part of it. And as that started to evolve, it also got into the idea of, I want to be holistic about this. I want to have everything from, you know, planting my 
crops in the spring so that I can attract people into a, into a food plot or deer into a food plot uh, to, you know, pre-hunting game cameras, watching my signs, you know, watching, you know, the velvet, you know, the, going all the way into the rut in the season. And finally it, it should end with basically eating, right? I mean, that's sort of the full circle. Um, so we started getting a little bit more holistic about how our, even our product line encapsulated all of that. You have sort of an entry-level kit. You, we we brought, brought in things that were more, hey, if you're really doing this as a group, this is like stamps. We developed a stamping kit that worked on vacuum seal bags. It's a relatively niche product, but I would, you know, you used to use butcher paper, but I'm almost exclusively vacuum seal bags now. But vacuum seal bags, if you use a regular marker on them to kind of wipe off when they're in the freezer. So we developed an ink that used like a, it was basically like a Sharpie pen ink so you could stamp on the bags. That came from literally, you know, just our own experience, but they sold very well because we found out that it wasn't just us having that, that issue. A lot of people were. So we started developing things that really were relevant to people doing it because we were doing it. And any product that we would develop would first go through, I would use it, I would try it, I would experiment with it, make different you know, changes to it. And that's really how we evolved. We've been doing that, like I said, about 2009. Um, so we're like 13 years into that. And now we have a pretty extensive line of products like that, including the vacuum sealers and the bags and everything that goes with processing essentially. Hopefully that's, that, is that kind of cover your, you yes. know, your initial question of how I get into it? <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, most definitely. That's awesome. Like, and there's so many things there too that I could ask or like get into. So I, I think that, I think that's awesome. Um, you know, I, I, I get to actually, you know, if it's okay, I'll, I'll, I'll expand on one little area that's yeah. kind of fun to talk about in there. Yeah. Um, grinders were like our first product and like, Grinders, again, were like, you know, when you're doing venison, like a lot of it goes into hamburger. Usually, you're, you know, for us, we use like, you know, a, a ratio of pork to venison. Some people use, you know, beef to venison. Um, and it really, you, you almost need that fat content to really make it tasty and work well. So we started developing these grinders. Well, almost every grinder that was on, that we, we had access to were European based. And usually it was like, the former Soviet bloc countries, they sold a lot of grinders and those were developed. And we would, rather than start over, we would kind of go look at what they were had or could sell into our market. And we'd be the exclusive guys for it. But what ended up happening was that our venison is way harder on a grinder than beef would be or, or sheep would be. Um, the, the silver skin, especially. Silver skin of venison wraps around the grinder auger. It can break a unit really easily. So we started using the first grinders we used, I immediately broke. Like the auger drive would break. Then it was kind of, we had a running joke because we'd start at the grinding head and everything would break as we'd fix one thing and go back to the back of the auger, then to the gearing in the motor. And then the motor bushings would break until the switch and the cord were like the last thing. So we went from one end to the other, redesigning the whole thing. And really realized that like nobody had been doing this. There really wasn't anything that was non-commercial that was capable of doing it. So as we developed it, we were like, everything was a new problem. You solve one problem and you get to another problem. And you know, we have it all dialed. It took like, like two years for us to get all that dialed in. Um, but now when you look at it, 
we developed a lot of people within our category, like ended up following us. They're like, you know, we used all metal gears or we used an all metal drive rather than plastic components in the drive. Um, all that because no, you know, our wild game is much, much tougher than basically captively raised you know, food. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Actually, I don't think I even realized like how much harder it would be on a machine. Like that didn't even cross my mind. I, uh, my first job, actually, it was under the table. It was just cash. First job, I was 14 years old. And my job, I worked at a meat processing um, facility in a really tiny town in Iowa. And my job was to clean out all of the machines. So I had like a power washer just spraying bits of meat everywhere. <laughs> that, was, that was my, and cleaning it up and making um, the equipment like squeaky clean for the next day. So I came in at night yep. at 14 under the table. It was actually great because at that age, every other girl I knew was babysitting or a lifeguard. And I didn't want to do either one of those things. And that opportunity came up. So um, that was my very first job ever. And then they actually let me, the the guys that worked there and like owned the company would give me like the small deer and let me clean the small deer for customers too. But I feel like nostalgic <laughs> talking about it, yes. you know, cause uh, I can, under, I, under, I understand, I relate. And um, now having a partner whose family is in the meat processing world, and like watching like his like butchering ability, it has really made me want to be better. Um, just under like making sure I'm not wasting anything, understanding how to use it all, how to process it myself, especially now because the wait times at meat processors are crazy. Um, yes. And yeah, all of that. So uh, like, I, I definitely think, I guess now, do you see that there's more of a need for your product than ever? Like, are you guys seeing like an influx of people wanting to do it on their own or talk to me about that a little bit? Sure. I, I think there are a lot more people who, this is more, I think this is a big picture issue. Um, I think like when I grew up, hunting was just a fact of life, whether it be tradition or, hey, that's just how, you know, we eat venison, you know, as, as kind of our main protein. What I'm seeing now is people are hunting more for, again, the reconnection with nature, the understanding our roots of where we came from. I see a lot more of that. So I see the demands have changed a little bit because people are looking for product that works. And, you know, feedback has been the best thing that's ever happened in the retail industry of actually having feedback to know if something works or not. So the consumer shops differently than they did in the beginning, demand-wise, when CWD was was a big deal, I saw demand spike at that time. We've seen pretty steady demand. I will say, when like the recession hit, uh, we saw demand go up because more people went hunting, and you you know basically you know try to you know save money with it. Well, again, what I see now is more of a holistic approach where people are like, look. I want to disconnect from my phone. I want to disconnect from technology. I want to go sit in the woods and I want to hunt. And I want the whole thing from start to finish to be a process, not start in the middle and end in the middle. I'm seeing that wanting to make the full loop. And I think, it, you know, that part to me is redeeming and pretty awesome uh, because I've always sort of myself identified hunting that way. It's a time to reflect. 
I mean, there's nothing like deer hunting to be able to self-reflect. Anybody who's done deer hunting and knowing how quiet you have to be, it forces you to think and, and reflect in your own mind. And it's a healthy thing to be able to do it. And so I've seen that trend towards holistic approach to hunting uh, be a positive thing all around. And it ties right into our product, right? Just dropping your meat off at a processor. There's nothing wrong with that, but wanting to actually do it yourself. One of the things I'm a big advocate for is um, quick kills, quick, you know, quick kills, find your game, open it up, get it cold. Like those things are really, really important in the processing world. But one of the things I really like is that um, I'm a pretty good shot. I know how to kill a deer pretty quick. And because of that, you don't have like a gut shot or you don't have a hind quarter shot where they bleed out over time. You track them and get them, but they, their adrenaline goes through the system. You tend to have a little bit tougher meat because of it. So if you know you get a good clean shot, you get a good clean kill, you're going to have a better tasting meat. And I know that me personally, I want to make sure that's my hamburger. I want to make sure those are my tenderloins because I took the time, took the right shot, was patient. I did these things and it all ties into what I have. Now, sometimes not everybody does this, but especially venison hamburger at processors tends to get, uh, get all collectively put together. Um, and you know, your venices are most likely, or your tenderloins are most likely yours. A lot of the pro a lot of it's yours, but the hamburger itself tends to be more batch processed. So um, I like the idea that I'm getting what I brought to the processor and not every processor does that um, and different states have different regs related to that. But at least for me, I like knowing that I control the whole process that I cooled my meat down pro properly. I gutted it properly. I, I, I just, I did the steps that I know how to do and that's the meat that I'm going to end up eating. So I like that part. Yeah, I agree. And I, and I absolutely love that. And I guess from someone who's kind of going down this road now myself, I know this is probably not like a perfect answer, but for someone who wants to start processing their own meat themselves, where would you tell them to start? Like what, cause you know, can it be, it can be expensive upfront if you get every piece of equipment um, to make all the things right. But what would you suggest for someone just starting out? Yeah, my suggestion would be the first thing to start with would be a good grinder. Um, the, the, most of your meat's going to go to hamburger. That's just the way it is. I mean, most of your meat's going to go to hamburger. Like, again, your tenderloins, you're not going to screw that up. You can do most of that with your hands anyway. Um, but the hind quarters, front quarters, the, you know, that's just mostly going to get ground into hamburger. So a good grinder, a good knife set. And I'm talking like a good caping knife, a good, you know, just a good knife set that is specific to skinning, gutting, like invest in that. You don't have to go over the top, um, but they're a very specific knife. We sell one, but there's a lot of them out there that have a good gut hook blade, a caping knife, uh, you know, just a skinning knife. Like a skinning knife makes things really nice. I'm a big advocate. I should say advocate. I'm a big believer. Yeah, I, I, I debark or skin my deers out when they're warm. Still, uh, I've done it every way conceivable. I've hung them up. I've done everything. I like to cape them out like right away while they're still warm and they come off really easy. But if you get a good skinning knife for doing that, it makes the process go so much faster. Make sure you got a good knife sharpening system because I recommend either having multiple knives or sharpening your knives through the entire process. A good sharp knife makes all the difference in the world. And so stop and sharpen your knife, especially when you're hitting fur, 
fur is one of the hardest things on your knife. So like if, if you're cutting through the neck, you know, and you're basically, you know, usually I start the neck and work my way down. If you're doing that, normally you kind of wring the neck when you're doing that and then start peeling back with a, a slice down the chest. Um, that typically dulls your knife really quick. So one of the things I'll do is I'll start with like a caping blade to do that because I don't use my caping blade for skinning for the most part. So I'll just start like that and get it going. And then you're really running your knife blade down between the, uh, you know, the skin, you're pulling it back and the fat layer over, uh, over the muscles and you're just skinning it out like that. But that knife blade being super sharp and then maintaining it, even if you're just grabbing a, a quick hone on it to keep it, that edge on there, that's a big difference. So a good knife set, a grinder for making your hamburger. Those are the places I would start. But then I would you know, probably look at things like, you know, do you like making jerky? If you do, then you can make less hamburger and you can make a lot more sliced jerky than a slicer and a dehydrator. I make a ton of jerky. I love venison jerky, especially because it's so lean to begin with. Um, so I would go with a dehydrator. You can, we sell dehydrators. They're not that expensive. We're not the only ones. Lots of people sell dehydrators, but get one that goes up to 165 degrees um, and, you know, marinate your meat overnight. Make sure to use your salt brines and your prog cures. Like those are really important aspects if you get into it. But I'd say most people for a few hundred bucks, like our FG 1000, I think is retails around 220. That's, of course I'm biased, but that's the one I would recommend. It's got good metal gearing. It's a number 12 grinder, which is on the big side. It's easy to clean stainless steel cutting blade has a, the way the, the auger is designed. You put a bowl underneath it has a reverse function, thermal reset switch. So if you overburden it, a lot of cheap grinders, if you really are, you're pushing hard and you're running them hard, they'll have what they call a TCO or a thermal couple inside that basically um, will open up and it's shot. You can't, it's not user serviceable. Ours, we built with a thermal reset switch. So if you did that, all you got to do is took the machine over and push the button to reset it once it cools down and you can go again. I think that's a really nice feature, but that's, you know, that's a, that number 12 grinder will compete with your commercial grinders as far as, unless you're in a commercial operation with four to six people operating the grinder or feeding it in the tubs. But I would say for, you know, for 400 bucks, you can get a pretty good setup that includes the knife, like a knife set, um, a grinder, and really you get a dehydrator in there and even a slicer in there for that price. Um, and then you, when you slice, you're slicing that whole meat for the dehydrator for the jerky. Um, good even slices are really important with whole meat because then they all dry at the same rate. Otherwise, it's a big pain in the butt if you try to do it with a knife. You just, you can't get the consistent thickness for most people that can't. Yeah, that's like exactly what I was looking for. Like that's like for me, just as I'm listening, like I will probably re-listen to this just to kind of justify in my head, you know, like this is what I need. It's where I'm going to start. It's what I got to do. Keep it simple because sometimes when you look into this stuff, um, there's so many awesome resources out there, you know, with YouTube and social media and just endless internet sites. But for me, I kind of want to talk to someone that I trust or a brand that I trust and have someone kind of break down the first few steps for me. And then I can go from there, you know? Um, so that is super helpful. Well, and maybe if, if it's helpful, I'll give you a couple, like just sort of like for people who just don't do it, want to get into it. I give like five minutes of what I think are the most important things getting into processing. Yeah. Uh, I already kind of, I already, I already talked about like, you know, good, quick, clean kill. 
you know, find, find your animal right away, open it up, gut it and get it cooling down quickly. That's super important. Uh, but the other thing is, you know, once you get it back, like, like, you know, watch a YouTube video on anatomy. It's really it, 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 muscle groups. Once you start kind of understanding that you're talking about muscle groups, you basically deconstruct the muscle groups. And the beauty of the whole thing is, is that you're not going to make a mistake that is, you really, you, you can't undo. Worst case scenario turns into hamburger. Yeah, you're gonna throw in the, you're gonna cube it up and put it in the, and make it a hamburger anyway. But if you want your good cuts and you want to make sure you get some steaks out of it and stuff like that, take your time. You know, what, you know, cut you know, cut through a couple you know, uh, those muscle groups. Starting with like a hind quarter is always a nice place to start. I'll, I'll actually, you know, when I I skin out my deer, I'll remove the quarters. I'll re- remove the the upper. I can do almost everything without a saw. So if you kind of go through, you can take the arms off. You can. You know, cut the muscle, you can sort of lift the arms up, slowly cut the muscle groups away until you get to the socket on the arms, the whole front quarter will come away. And then deconstruct the muscle groups on there, taking the silver skin off. Silver skin is not your friend. If you, uh, you know, if you've had venison, you're sort of like, I don't like it because it's gamey tasting. It's almost certainly because you let, you know, somebody left the silver skin on or used the fat. I don't think venison fat's a great fat to use. I, I, I save it for the birds. I, I actually save my fat and use it as suet for birds, but I don't use venison fat to add fat back to my venison. I, I just, a personal choice, you can do it. But if you do it, that's one of the reasons why it tastes gamey versus more like traditional beef or meat that, and, and this is just a preference thing. I personally don't like that taste. I like it to be a little bit more, traditional taste from and from my tradition which is less silver skin less fat and then add in i usually add in if i'm making hamburger um one to two pounds of pork per pound depending on what i'm using it for if i'm going to make sausage out of it i add more pork if i'm just using it for hamburger i usually do two to one two venison one pork so those that's it i mean if you just want to get into processing yourself and learn how to deconstruct muscle groups you've got half the battle won right there. And it's really quite easy. And again, understanding that you're not going to screw things up. And then finally, I'd say again, back to knives and, and having a good knife and a sharp knife makes the whole thing so much better. Uh, if you don't have a good knife or you don't have the right knife, like if you're trying to use your caping knife um, to you know, deconstruct your muscle groups, that's a no-no in my book too. If you're want it to be easy, again, I've used a buck knife to do a lot of deer in my life and it did everything. But if you want to have it be easy and rewarding, having a knife set that has kind of every knife in it between the caping, the, the, uh, you know, the skinning knife, a gut hook, all those things are not that expensive. I think that knife is like 50 bucks, 60 bucks, something like that. It's a worth the investment, it makes it much more enjoyable. Yeah, I love that. And even what you said about, uh, ways to use the deer fat. I have multiple bird yeah. feeders and I am constantly replacing them. <laughs> and so I'm like making note of that for myself as well, because I might have a new purpose for my deer fat for sure. I've never heard anyone it, say It's that great. They, yeah. I, I just put it up. I, I use just like a fruit bag and I put it in a fruit bag and hang it up. Uh, I usually, honestly, that time of year, I usually hang it up on the eaves of camp and, uh, and then watch the birds all day. It's kind of That's fun. Cool. I don't know. Watching birds, birds is kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is, that is awesome. I actually had a, um, this is just a really random, uh, really random thought that was like really cool. I was taking my, my bird dog on a, on a run the other day 
And the area that I live is a really um, big Amish community. And um, when I pull up to this like public land, like trail, there's like a horse and buggy out there or whatever. So I know we're going to run into an, Am an Amish folk uh, while we're on the trail at some point. And I run into this man who's probably roughly my age. And uh, he decides to chat me up. He's got like binoculars and uh, like a really old school like tape recorder. And he was just out there all day watching and sitting um, and recording these birds. And he just, I mean, this is just like a split second, but he is so excited to rattle off to me. I, I think he probably said 10 or 11 different birds that he had been watching and like recording. Um, and it was just like as giddy as could be. And he's like, you would just be so surprised on what, what is out here, you know? Um, but that's just my random thought, <laughs> random thought for this podcast. That was just the other day. And I thought that was such a cool, I just thought that was like such a cool moment. Um, and yeah, I, I've, uh, got yeah. one, I've got, I've got to ask like to add to that, that my daughter and I, she's 10, we use bird calls as a form of communication. So I have a certain bird call that I'll give her, which is basically, where are you? And she will whistle back a bird call that says she's, you know, basically fine. Or, you know, and, and if she said, if it's anything besides this one, then I know I better go find her. So I'll use a bird call. She, she used a different bird call back. I, and I know that, that she's fine. I get a general sense of where she's at. And I'm like, all right, we're all good. Uh, but we, we use it for that, you know, for actual communication, which is pretty fun. I love that. I uh, turkey yelp with my natural voice as much as I can. And um, I'm really awful at my owl, but I still do it and they still respond. Um, yep. So I, I was at a, on a camping trip with my cousins this past weekend. And, um, one of my, one of my cousins brought her boyfriend and he's, he's total city boy. And he, he says that, you know, and we're sitting around the fire and these owls start going crazy and he's not really paying attention. And he hears me start making these noises. And he's like, what the heck are you doing? I was like, listen, and I, I make the owl like hooting noises and they were come back and his eyes are like the size of his the head. He's like, back. Yeah. He's like, what? <laughs> he's like, and, and then he just heard that like, there's probably like six of them that were going back and forth. And I'm like, just listen. And he's like, how many, how do you know there's that many? I'm just like, listen to like where they're coming from, you know, where and it just at. blew yeah. his mind. Yeah. He like, absolutely just like that little thing. He just thought that was the, like the wildest thing. Um, Did you, have you, have you ever built an owl call on like a V8 can? No, I have not. <laughs> <laughs> we can we can do it we can do it offline but i i've built a number of owl calls using a, using a va can at least the old style and you yeah. can use your thumb then to adjust the call it's pretty cool it's totally yeah it, it, I, when i first started turkey hunting i was like maybe eight and i remember with my uncle building a v8 uh owl call and being amazed at the fact that we could go identify the turkey at night and then we go out in the morning once we found them and go out in the morning and hunt them uh, th that this is, is back awesome. in like i don't know this has been like early 80s or something like that that we were doing that and like turkeys were just sort of becoming a thing again like i can specifically remember when turkeys sort of made their comeback yeah and like yeah. we we're all so excited to go hunt turkeys again and like that not again but just in general and i always thought the owl call was such a cool thing and you don't you don't always hear that nowadays yeah one of the um like a core memory but it was the worst headache i've ever had probably ever uh is I, I did my first turkey calling competition 
And before you go to, and I, and I did not place, I, I, I'd use my natural voice most of the time, which and I, I, I was, I'm so new to doing this, but it was such a cool experience. And the people that were competing were w- wonderful humans. And they had a um, owl competition and a turkey competition, like back to back, basically. So you're, you're in this pretty small room with 30 other people and everyone's practicing their calls in this small room. And I'm just watching and listening to these people. And it was some of the coolest, most amazing things I've ever heard, but you're in there for an hour, you know, waiting for your, for your turn. And you're just in this small room listening to owls and gobbles and yelps and cackling hen sound. And it's like vibrating off the walls, but it was so, so cool. But I had a pounding headache after that. Um, (laughs) it, It was crazy, but I was just so impressed with these people. Like blew me out of the water, but it was just, and and a lot of them, um, I'd ask if they did natural voice, you know, and a lot of them were using calls, but then they're like, oh yeah. And then they would just break out these wicked owl calls, um, with their natural voice that sounded more like an owl than an owl does, you know? Um, it was, it was, it was so cool. It's just so cool what people can do. I mean, I I just love it. Uh, any anything that kind of gets you immersed within nature i'm a big fan of just yeah. <laughs> if, it, if it means i get I, I get to be out there and listening and paying attention to everything that's going on to me like that's yeah and, and if you try to like kind of explain to somebody why hunting and by the way i heard you have a, I, have, I have two pointing labs i'm a big upland game hunter it's it's probably my primary thing i do nowadays but trying to get people into hunting you know, or why hunt and i'm sure we've probably both had those conversations quite a bit and, you know, you, 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 most people fixate on like the kill part of it. And, you know, it's cliche. It's not the kills, thrill, the chase. But when you start explaining to people why is the, 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 the fun comes from the, the immersing yourself into what's going on. The, the, you become a part of nature. You are much more acutely aware of things that, you know, just it's the finite details that go into becoming a part of your environment that we don't do in everyday life. And it's so to me it's so much more rewarding to kind of have even even just going back to the basics of knowing you can provide for yourself that's a huge thing for me but the idea that i become immersed within my environment i'm way more sensitive about it but trying to explain to people about why we hunt um and and that's back to that holistic approach and maybe it's just that i'm getting older so that's you know, part of it, the getting older aspect of things, you get more reflective on it. But hunting to me is, is really about that becoming one with the environment, becoming one with where you're at. And that's where even the processing or eating it to me is the closing of the circle all the way around. And, and I think I, you were asking earlier, if I've seen this evolution, some of it, I just don't know if I'm biased because I'm watching for it, or if I am seeing that closing of the circle. I'm seeing people become more interested and doing the whole process. Uh, I do think that's actually happening within our industry that we're seeing more of that. And I think that's why you see more guys, uh, you know, or people in general going towards archery than gun. I think that to me, that was a big, you know, archery has been growing substantially for the last 20 years. And, you know, really, if you look at it, it's because, well, time of year, but also who's driving that part of it is really about being, the, the, the purist honestly i mean not everybody's a purist so there's archery but you're seeing the purists tend to go that direction a little bit more who want that holistic approach to hunting in general oh my gosh i totally agree 
And yeah, I, I do. I, I think it's all of those things like getting older is I am, I reflect on a lot of that stuff a lot. And I, I don't know what it is either. If you're kind of looking for it or if it is trending that way, I'm sure it's both. It seems to be trending that way. I know where I live. Um, the, like we have 5,000 kids in the state of Iowa, almost out for uh, trap shooting and the archery and the school programs here are huge. You know, I'm only, I'll be 31 tomorrow. Um, and you know, when I was in school, which wasn't that long ago, uh, there was not those opportunities to do sports like that. Um, that, you know, obviously those are not directly hunting outdoor related, but they are kind of like a gateway a little bit. And absolutely. Yeah. I just think, I, I do think, um, it's getting back to that. I host, I host uh, a lot of like women's workshops and events. And when I get to know these women who are getting in hunting or fishing or whatever the like outdoor skill is, um, they talk about why, you know, and I, and I would say everything that they say is directly like what you're, what you're saying, kind of the full circle. They want to be full circle. Um, they want to be, you know, they want to harvest it. They want to process it. They want to put it on the table and they want to teach their family and be a part of it with their family. It's yeah. I mean, it's just across the board. I totally agree. So, so I, I had a recent conversation with somebody that we were talking about hunting and I said, uh, yeah, hunting is like meditation with a purpose. Yes. Um, and, and I, I've sort of come I, like, I, it wasn't mine. I, I think I said, I said that they said that. And I was just sort of like, man, that makes a ton of sense. Cause that again, you know, technology I, I'm, I'm 50. So like you could just sort of see like, I've gone through a lot of the evolution of technology, you know, from, you know, really even going back as far as black and white TV, I, you know, I've gone through a lot of that. And to me is disconnecting from that is become such an important part of me just being able to disconnect from my job or just, you know, disconnect from the daily routines. And again, sort of calm the mind, calm the spirit, just, you know, just, just be in your surroundings at the moment. And that, again, I don't know how much of it is just me projecting that the industry is going that way, or if I've done enough of these conversations or meet people in the industry, you know, people within the industry tend to be pretty passionate about it. But if I look at where the evolution of our products are going, it does seem like that's becoming a bigger area and that approach to hunting is becoming a bigger deal. So I, and I think that's honestly healthy for our industry. It, it really is. I mean, not that anything was wrong before, as far as I'm concerned with the industry, but if people started to understand the whys, it, 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 I think most people can relate to the idea of unplugging or the idea of, again, meditation with a purpose. I think once you start explaining to folks that maybe don't have the basis that we do the way we grew up, you start to understand and appreciate why somebody might have that perspective or likes to hunt or do these things. And they realize yeah, it really isn't about the kill. It's about this whole process. The kill is just a natural part of the process. And, you know, but it's, it's more than that. That's why, again, back to processing, that's why I like the idea that it doesn't end with just the kill and gutting. It, it ends with the whole processing and, you know, long-term storage that you can use in the wintertime. That to me kind of, I'd rather end my sentence there than in the middle, if that makes sense. Oh yeah. If you're like speaking my language, <laughs> but saying it a lot better than I would say it. Yeah. I, I totally agree. And that's what gets me excited. And I mean, I can't remember exactly what brought this conversation up recently, but 
we were talking about the outdoors being like my whole personality <laughs> and like the, yeah. the, the danger of like that being like, I guess my identity, but like from an outsider's perspective, if, if they don't feel about it the way that I do, it might, it, it might be hard for them to understand that, you know, I'm not just, it's not just about turkey, deer, waterfowl, and upland hunting, you know, that in coon hunting, it, it's like, it's so much more detailed than that. Like it's every day, it's every day of my life. Like I read about it. I write about it. I talk about it. I try to be better identifying birds and identifying trees and practice like my map skills and working. My workouts are motivated by hunts I want to do. And, um, it's kind of like every part of my life, you know, (laughs) I mean, every detail is really about it. I a hundred percent agree. I've been, especially as you go back to the, uh, just the, the, the learning of the outdoors. And, uh, I, I spent some time with my, I have three kids and my middle child, I, I took out, it was, this was after Thanksgiving, um, kind of that weekend afterwards. And I was up North. So I like, I took them out. We learned how to set snares. We learned how to make fires with, with, with Flint and, uh, but, but compass reconnoitering was, was the big one where like, again, GPS is so prevalent today and it's great. I use GPS all the time, but it's really nice to have some fun with a compass and learn how to use a compass and how to do sight lines and, you know, how to do paces and counting your paces. And, you know, we went with, you know, rocks in the pocket to, you know, to pace off stuff. And it just like, these are things that I grew up with and I don't want to lose either. And I want my kids to have it. So, you know, that's the other thing. It helps me connect with my children. It'll be something that they'll have beyond me and maybe they do with their kids. If that's the way it goes. Um, I like that part of it as well. Again, especially the, the outdoor skill sets are so what I've really found, especially with my kids is, is that it gives them a confidence level that they didn't have before. It, yeah. You know, it gives them the way to work out a solution. Uh, one of my big pet peeves with my kids is like, you know, I can't do it here. Help me. And I'm like, all right, look at it. You know, what do you see? Where do you want to get to? What do you see as a solution to get there? And the outdoor provides so many opportunities for that. I took my 15 year old camping, not this past weekend, but the weekend before. And it came time to set up the tent. And usually dad sets up the tent. And I, and I had my own ticks. He brought friends along and I had my two labs with me. So I'm like, well, I said, the labs and I will set up my tent. You guys got to set up your tent and you can ask <laughs> me questions, but I am not going to come over and do it for you. Uh, and, and so like it, it was, I have a couple expressions. I won't tell you here of what it looked like, but they got it. They were actually, <laughs> they, they ended up getting it and I watched it. It took everything in dad's power not to go over there and like, you know, be like, just do this and put this here. But what it ended up doing is they, they, they it was problem solving and, I, and hunting outdoors, camping, all these things give an opportunity to, to, especially in this case, younger folks to work through problems that were, you know, easy to, I mean, they weren't going to go cold or anything that night, you know, it's like, but they were able to figure it out. And from there, they had a basis to work off of next time. And next time they go to set up a tent, it'll be a little bit easier. Or next problem they have, they approach it in the same way. Um, you know, knots, we played around a lot with knots and stuff like that. Same thing. You can look at a knot on a rope if you're trying to de-knot something and try to figure out what it looks like and how it works and figure out how to get the knot out. It's an amazingly simple thing that we've all done, but it's amazing to me that when you actually look at it, it forces your brain to problem solve. 
And in today's world, I'm not trying to just bash on you know, young people, but problem solving isn't something that's as prevalent today as it was years ago. It's an essential life skill you have to have. And to me, the outdoors offers that in spades. It, 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 it offers it everywhere. Yeah, I agree 100%. And are you doing okay on time? Um, yeah. Do you have a hard stop? You now? know what? Um, nah, no, I, 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 I really got about eight more minutes before I do a hard stop. And then I okay. can pick it up again at about 430 if that's okay. Yeah, that should be fine. And yeah, if you're not, you're in yeah. Iowa, you said, right? So yeah, you're yeah. on central time too. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. By the way, I just, if we're taking a little break here, are you anywhere near Webster? Am I near Webster? Iowa. Um, yeah. Is it uh, Webster City? Yes, Webster City. Sorry, yeah. Uh, gosh, Webster City. Yeah. I used to do a lot of pheasant hunting out there. Uh, is there Fort Dodge out that way too? Yeah, um, yeah. Yep. I used to do a lot of pheasant hunting over there. That's awesome. Um, I live south of Kelowna. Um, or like 25 minutes south of Iowa City. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so you're actually, you'd be a little bit east of there then, huh? Yeah. Is Webster City northern though? Northern Iowa? Is that right? Yes. It, yes, yeah. it is. Okay. I've only been to Webster City once, I think, for a previous job. Like, I, I drove a ton. Um, but yeah. Uh, I, I, ended up I ended up ditching South Dakota for pheasant hunting um and started doing iowa and i liked iowa way better than i ever liked south dakota really yeah i'll just tell you why south dakota became such a mega industry it was you know 300 bucks a gun per day it wasn't very sporting couldn't hunt in the mornings um you know it, the licenses were like 300 bucks yeah. for a you know yeah. for a five-day license and it was you know you go to like you know you go to the uh, what if i remember the uh it was a sioux city whatever it was yep in a hotel room in a hundred dollar night hotel was 400 bucks. It was like, I just remember thinking to myself, I'm like, how is anybody who's younger, but no money ever going to get into this? Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. it's all a bunch of old, it would really was a bunch of old white dudes that were basically had hunted all their lives. And that, that, that was all you ever saw was, you know, I'm like, ah, so I offered like, you know, the, everything was reasonable. The licenses were, they were still stocking fields. Um, I didn't pay for anything in Iowa. I just went to public hunt lands and use those and, and did very well. I mean, it was great. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. That's awesome. Are you, are you in Wisconsin now? Yeah. I, so our factory is located, uh, or our, our corporate headquarters in two rivers, Wisconsin. Um, but that would be straight South of where I grew up in the UP. So it's gotcha. kind of our place, Green Bay, Iron Mountain, Michigan, and then keep going North about 30 miles from there. Cool. Yeah, I actually, uh, I, um, I went to a hunting guide school last summer. It was my birthday gift to myself and, uh, it was in, it was in South Dakota and part of our kind of like training and like class stuff was going over how to run like a preserve. Um, and they were giving lots of examples of different like hunting preserves and how hunting works in South Dakota. Um, and being from Iowa, he was like asking a lot of questions about like in comparison. And there's not, there's not actually that many hunting preserves in Iowa anymore. Um, 
for Upland and, but there's a lot of really nice ones. I mean, they're, they're great. Uh, but they're, they are a third of the price, um, for your average South Dakota one, like yep, insane, like insane. Um, and we talked about that and, you know, I didn't, I didn't necessarily go to the hunting, like I didn't go to the guide school, uh, necessarily for that side of it, but it was super fascinating. And they talked about how they run their books and what they have to, um, you know, uh, share with the DNR and all those kinds of things that, that was a fascinating conversation. Um, but when they talked about prices in Iowa, they couldn't believe it because, you know, one of the guys was talking about back in the day, you know, Iowa and South Dakota were pretty competitive. Iowa was a major state for people to go pheasant hunting to. Um, right. And so he was surprised to hear like how affordable it was in comparison uh, to South Dakota. It, 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 I mean, in South Dakota, they went through a pretty drastic change. And I always looked at it like, you know, they always, Illinois is one of my pet peeves, like this whole system in Illinois. It's like twice as expensive if you don't have their FOB system. Yeah. I'm like, yes, because it's, that's because you're from out of state. They're going to tax you more. I always felt South Dakota was the same way. It's like, hey, you know, we're going to try to squeeze out as much as, uh, from you as we can. And that's how it felt when you went there. Yeah. And I'm like, it had changed dramatically from when I was young and went and did it to when I was a little bit older and when did it. Um, uh, but the, the other thing that kind of changed my mind too is most of their pheasants came out of Janesville, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And like, there's, there's a massive pheasant place in Janesville, Wisconsin that like, I would just see trucks shipping out of there all the time headed to South Dakota and they would restock the fields with these pheasants. And I'm like, all right, well, these are the same birds I'm shooting at a hunting preserve. And you're just basically loading them up the fields in here. I mean, it's basically the same bird. I just drove out here and spent a lot more money to do the same thing. And I'm like, eh, you know, so I, 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 that's where I went to Iowa. And I, I don't particularly care for a canned hunt. When I was younger, I enjoyed it. Nowadays, I, I, I like, again, I like, a, I like hunts that are hard. I like mm-hmm. I had to hike in. Yeah. I had to, I like that whole experience versus, all right, you know, I, I did I did a western hunt a couple of years ago and it was like you know, we drove around in a truck with you know with you know with with binoculars until we found the right animals, we shot them. And I was like, yeah, it does nothing for me. <laughs> I was like, no, nah, I mean I, I did it because I went with some friends and I was like, this is not hunting to me. I'm like, all right. So really what I'm really into is grouse hunting, rough, rough grouse. Um, my yes. camp is basically a rough house and that's all I go after now. <laughs> Um, my dogs are specific for that. And I just, I enjoy that. And I get maybe a couple a year. Like I, you know, if I go road hunting, you know, you, you can find a lot more, but I like going with my dogs because I love that interaction and I love getting a couple grouse throughout the season that way. And I put on miles and miles and miles, which is really what I want to be doing. Oh my gosh. So you saying that, I love that you said that. So there, there is not really much for, you know, grouse. I I've been actually looking at the maps in Iowa where there are, where there are said to be grouse, but I've never, you know, I've never seen grouse in Iowa. It's not something that I grew up hunting, but the last couple of years, I went to Wisconsin last year and I went to Minnesota the year before to grouse hunt and I'm going to South Dakota grouse hunting um, this year. And uh, we have a Brittany Spaniel. He's not quite a year old yet. Uh, the first thing we ever introduced him to was grouse we trained him with you know frozen grouse for a while um and i absolutely fell in love with it and i couldn't believe it was like hidden from me my whole life um i absolutely love grouse hunting it's something that i like 
genuinely want to do every, every year. Um, I just, it, I enjoyed it so much. So I, I've done a couple of things in my evolution grousing um, right now. And my grandfather did this. Uh, have you ever heard of a contender? It's a pistol, could be a rifle too, but it's got interchangeable barrels on it. Yes. I have a, I have a contender 410. And I'd say most of the guys, my family have gone to this and we now hunt with a holster and a 410 pistol. And oh it is so cool. I also, I also, if I'm, if I'm serious about it, I shoot with my 28 gauge. Like I love my 28 gauge for grouse hunting, but I have a little four this 410 contender and it's changed the dynamic on it way, way cooler. Like it's quick draw, it's single shot. It's, it's awesome. And I've only gotten a couple birds so far, but it is like the ultimate challenge in grouse hunting. And like, there's a whole like group of guys and like, I, I, I've met who, got, who are like into this from around the country. And it's just sort of like, I just sort of gravitate that way. My grandfather had a 44 Magnum with a, it was a shot shell instead. And I, but they made a 410 version. So I picked up the 410 version and it is just awesome. Cause it's usually in tight cover. And so the swing is very cool and it's, it's still about 18 inches long. So it's, it's just really cool. And then I also bought an AR upper 410. And uh, it has an eight shot magazine. And I use that too, because if I, I shoot railroad tracks, I've got railroad tracks I do. And having like, I always laugh because I'm like, my first two shots are ranging shots. Like, <laughs> I'm like, I always notice I'm always behind. So like my first two shots are ranging shots and then I can actually shoot the next one. But uh, that one, I just, that was more for fun. But I, my 28 gauge, my dogs, and I'll basically take September 15th or opener and I'll just, up right up till deer season, which is November 15th. I'll, I'll just grouse hunt all the time. That's awesome. I love that. I, yeah, I might follow up with you on some questions or maybe advice. I don't know. Cause it, it's pretty, it's pretty new for me. Um, but I, I've really enjoyed it and I can't even quite put my finger on it. I think, I think my biggest hesitation with grouse hunting and I'm, I've been talking with some folks about this is uh, the couple places that I've been, there's been a lot of wolf sign. Um, like one of the trails we took, uh, we went in, there was no wolf sign. We get out, there's tracks and, you know, poop everywhere. Uh, yep. and which was cool. Like that didn't bother me from a person perspective, but for my dog, uh, that is something that I, yeah. in my head living in Iowa, it's not something I think about um a lot and as i start hunting out of state it's something i i definitely want to seek advice for you know just to be smart about stuff yeah it's, it's well i can have i do a whole podcast on the wolf thing um <laughs> we have i have a lot of wolf by me um i definitely that is an issue um i have overlapping i have overlapping packs where i'm at um and they haven't caused me any problems uh we have had some local dogs get killed and stuff like that so it's it does create some issues um but the reality is, is that it, you're really not going to see them very often they're really going to i mean with your smell they they don't they fear humans yet um almost like i think i've heard a statistic from a guy who knows how true it is that like basically no roadkill wolf that they found have it hasn't had lead in it um, generally speaking, people by me do not like wolves. They don't like the fact they were reintroduced. Yeah. They don't like them. Um, there's animosity because there was a lie for a long time as to whether or not they were being reintroduced and they were done under a lie. And then it was, it was released later on. And they're like, well, you know, 
it, it from a lot of folks that I know, it felt like it was pushed from a certain segment who didn't have to live with the ramifications of it. And it devastated our deer population. I mean, I, I don't have hardly any, but I don't have much of a deer population left and mostly it's wolves. And that part can, is, you know, if you're a big time hunter, that's a, that's a pain in the butt. But then there's a dog. That's one of the reasons why I have two dogs is that uh, I like the idea that it's a lot less likely you're going to have a problem with two dogs than if you're going to have you know, a single wolf, two dogs. You know, you're, it's not to say they're not going to kill your dogs, but they're less likely to go after a single or two dogs in one. And so that's one of the reasons why I like having the two dogs is they have sort of backing up one another. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's my big thing right now, just having one. And I'm, I'm actually getting a second Brittany in, let's see, six days. <laughs> God, good for you. Is that yeah. your, by the way, is that going to be your, your birthday present to yourself? Yes. <laughs> yes. Nice. Nice. Yes, that, it is. It's my, uh, uh, my, it's, it's my half, it's the half brother to my, to my other Brittany I have right now. So I'm oh, pretty excited. Oh, that's cool. That. That's very cool. I, I've my lab, my new lab is nine months old. So I'm really, I'm coming up on my first season. I've got a lot for like, Oh, let's take your dog out. I'm like, no, no, no. This, this year is just me and him. And uh, we're going to get things right this year. And next year will be his kind of his coming his debutante ball next, next year. It'll be coming out. But I, uh, there's nothing again. I like deer hunting. I like, I like those things, but I've just found upland game is my, is my jam. That's that. I enjoy the walking. I enjoy being with the dogs and I just, that's, I, I enjoy that more than anything. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I always thought I'd be a big deer hunter and I do love deer hunting. Um, my dad's a really successful, you know, deer hunter loves deer hunting. And that's what I grew up doing the most and kind of a competitive family. So I thought I was supposed to, you know, being from Iowa, all of that, that I was supposed to be a deer hunter, but I like the birds waterfowl too. <laughs> yep. I, I really no, like I, birds. I, I've got, it's funny. You sort of go through your life, your iterations. I went through my duck hunting phase. I went through my hardcore deer phase. I've gone through, I did a lot of trapping when I was younger and, you know, like I've gone through a lot of those phases. And the one that really stuck was the, was, was basically grouse and pheasant. That's awesome. I get it. I totally get it. I don't know if I got it when I was younger, but I get it now. Most definitely. Okay. So another little random mini story for you. So when I was in a sales position, I was going down this kind of back road and I had gone, I have gone by this building multiple times and it appeared to be a garage, but it almost looked abandoned. And on the outside of it, there was constantly different Volkswagen vans and buses and cars. And it looked like just a junkyard of Volkswagens. But when I started to pay attention, uh, every time I went by, there were different ones. So clearly like vehicles are being moved in and out. And it was really like retro vehicles, but a lot of Volkswagens, which is really nostalgic and speaks to my hippie heart. And I love road trips and just like put me in this place, you know, and I just like couldn't help myself. One day I just literally pulled into this place, <laughs> which I wouldn't recommend people do because it looked, it looked kind of sketchy. Um, and I go in and I'm in a sales position, right? So at the time I'm like, I'm just going to work that into the conversation, but it was genuinely just me like wanting to stop there and know what was going on there. And I stopped and 
I go in the shop and it's just like full of vehicles, tools, like it's kind of a mess, but it's kind of awesome at the same time. And there's like this short, like old guy working in there. And I'm like, this is going to sound really goofy, but I go by here every single day. And I just want to know what you're, <laughs> what you're doing with all these old vehicles. Like, can people buy them from you? Like what, you know, my, my dad's a mechanic. Um, so I grew up around that kind of stuff my whole life, going to car shows and everything. Um, and I just couldn't, couldn't help myself. And he just, oh my gosh, he was such an interesting guy. Uh, he's like, let me show you something, which, you know, again, I don't know this person. I just got there. Um, and he's going to take me into a back area of the garage. So I'm thinking this is like how I go. <laughs> and I go to the back and there's a, there's an airplane in his garage, like a small little airplane. And, yep. um, he's like, so he's like, I used to be a pilot in Alaska and the, my job was to take the workers back and forth, you know, to their job sites. They might be out there for weeks at a time, take them back, you know, that kind of thing. And I was worked on all my own engines and all my engines and my planes were Volkswagen engines. And he, he's like, I did that for a long time. And then just from there, it just started to turn into when I moved to Iowa, people would send me their Volkswagens for me to not just redo the interior and exterior, but their motors, you know, everything. So he's like people from all over the country bring me their Volkswagens and I redo them for them based on what they want to do. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, you know, just like he is in the middle of kind of nowhere, Iowa. Um, and it does look really sketchy, but he had this like super interesting story and uh, it was super cool. And then he, he lives right on the river and um, ended up owning like 300 acres behind him and told me I could hunt and fish there whenever I wanted to. And then I moved, you know, I don't live that close to him anymore. Um, but it was such an awesome conversation. And I was there for probably a couple hours and, you know, didn't get murdered. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, I share that story because offline, you and I were talking just kind of like road tripping and you mentioned road tripping yourself. And I heard you like in explaining it to me, talking about Volkswagen. So that's why I just shared that story and that randomness, because I met this really cool character and it just made me want to like hit the road, go to Alaska, like all these things all in one, you know, I was so, I was such on a high after talking to this guy and, uh, yeah. you and I, you, you kind of started to go down this road and I, I just want to hear about your adventure. Yeah. So I, I've got, <laughs> I've got kind of a unique connection and I will just say Volkswagens and Jeeps. Like, like they, yeah. they sort of have the, the, the like Volkswagen Jeeps had their like their clicks, the the two finger waves, you know, the like they have their <laughs> clicks of people, and and everybody's pretty friendly, everybody's pretty into it, you know. It, it, it just I always think about how many Volkswagens I've owned over the years, and how many have broken down, and how I would never get in an airplane that had a Volkswagen engine, but I do love <laughs> them dearly. <laughs> I I, I grew up my 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 parents had a Volkswagen dealership, a small one. And I kind of grew up with them and yeah, I kind of was like a kid of the seventies and eighties. So um, the old micro buses, the pop top campers, every year my dad would get my brother and I, we would get a, a, a pop top camper. We would go to Yellowstone or we went to Disney world one time or we do a, a road trip somewhere. And there was always like an eight track player. And we'd like, listen, like yeah, Statler brothers going, you know, through Nashville or something like that, just really cool road trips. And they're pretty awesome. And, I just, yeah, again, grew up in that culture and around them. Didn't appreciate it for what it was at the time. But, you know, as you got older, you sort of realized, oh, that was pretty unique that I had that experience. But I went, I went to law school 
And while I was in law school, my, my, my father got cancer and he passed away. And, you know, law school was a pretty intensive deal. So I couldn't really do too much at the time. It just sort of had to keep, kind of keep my head down and, you know, do my thing. And my brother was actually had moved. He went to, to Michigan. So when he was done, he moved to L.A., and he was just—he's going to make it in the in the movie industry, you know, writing scripts and doing things like that. So, when I graduated law school, um, I called him up and I said, you know, in Wisconsin, you can graduate law school and you're you're automatically with Wisconsin law school, you automatically get a, a, admitted to the bar. You don't have to take the bar exam. So, while most people would have to take the summer and study for the bar exam, take the bar exam wherever they were at, I didn't have to do that. And I called my brother up and I said, hey. I just, I said, yeah, I, you know, to talk about our, our dad. And I said, I just want to come out and see you for a little while. And, you know, maybe, you know, lay, you know just sleep, you know, sleep on your couch. He's like, it's me and a bunch of other dudes living in an apartment trying to make it out here. Um, yeah, that's cool. Come on out. And uh, so I came out there and I hung out with him and his, all his buddies. And I won't name names, but a lot of these guys have become big names within the industry now. So it was really fun. Um, but we all lived in the, you know, basically they were very welcoming. Let me sleep on their couch for like, you know, two months in the summer. And while we were out there, I basically said to him, like, let's go find a camper somewhere. And he was all into it. And this is really the early days of the internet. We found basically a hippie commune that uh, some guy was selling his 78 Volkswagen camper. We went, bought it. It was like two grand brought it back to his like parking complex. We fixed it all up, repaired the whole thing and did this together. And then like at midnight, we left LA because he wanted like, they don't have air conditioning, they're air cooled and the desert is not their friend, but we just like headed out Hunter Thompson style from LA to Vegas. And that just began this epic road trip for us where like one of us would drive and one of us would sleep in the back and we would drive all night when it was cool. And we'd go to different, like we went again to Vegas, then we went to Zion, Bryce, went to the Tetons, went to, you know, Yellowstone. We hit, we just basically this epic Western adventure in our Volkswagen camper. And everywhere we went, we met the greatest people. We would just find the nicest people. And everybody kept giving us stuff. No matter where we go, like people bring just food to us. I don't know if we just looked hungry or what, but like, it was just, it was, it, we just clicked with people and it was a cool time for us. And, you know, a lot of the trip was just sort of retracing a lot of these trips we had with our dad and just it was really kind of a, a neat time to reconnect with my brother and then just have that sort of time to celebrate everything that had happened in our lives up at that point. But it all focused around Volkswagens. And when we got back, we went up to the Boundary Waters up in uh, northern Minnesota, yes. spent a week up there, you know, canoeing, paddling. You know, we both were big paddlers, still are, and just enjoyed our, our time. When we got all done, I lived in Madison, Wisconsin. So we got, we went, we basically the whole trip was to go see my mom. So we made this, this, this multi-week trip and finally got to see my mom. And you know, we celebrated that being back. It was just a really cool moment and a really cool time of our lives um, that worked out really well. And so when it was all done, I ended up, I sold the camper in Madison for like, for like eight grand and it paid for like my entire summer. And I, I called my brother. I'm like, you're not gonna believe this. I just made you know all the money back. And, you know, and he's like, that was so much fun. Want to do it again? And we did. And I, I, I like immediately went back out there. We bought two more. And then did the West, like the lower Southern states. And it was just, we, it was the right time. He was a, 
you know, he was like the typical movie guy where he basically waited tables and, you know, took temp jobs while he was writing his scripts and getting it, you know, getting them ready. And I just hadn't started my, you know, my career path yet. I was just done with school and we had so much fun. And when it all came down, I actually, um, I came back and I kept, I sort of, as a hobby, kept restoring these old Volkswagens. I did like, maybe kind of like the guy you met. I did like 15, 16 of them over the years, but I started getting into carburetors. Volkswagen carburetors became my niche. And I opened up a machine shop. And so I like a lawyer during the day and I did these machine shop carburetor, vintage German carburetor restorations. And it started growing and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the company that I, that I now own and run had actually reached out to me because they'd sort of through the kind of through the grapevine had, had heard about me and said, Hey, we're looking for a, you know, an attorney, but we understand you got kind of this business and a machine shop and doing these things. And that kind of is what we do too. Would you be interested in coming and doing an interview? And at the time I just got married and, and my wife and I really want to have kids. And it was like, I'm like, yeah, I'd come meet you. I come talk to you. So I, I came and I talked to him. And during the process, I really clicked with the owner of the company I, and the people who were around him. And it was just, it was funny because I hadn't had that Volkswagen experience and I hadn't gone and taken that adventure choice. If I hadn't gone and do those things, it never would have been set up to put me on the path to where I am today, or, you know, I, I own the company now. I started a brand. I'm really, I, we, we went through these, these paths. I, I think the moral of the story is, happens to be Volkswagens in this case, but the moral of the story is choose adventure. And I tell people that all the time, you know, this is the time of your graduation parties, people going to college. My advice for everybody is like, say yes. If, if you see the adventure, go for it. Like there's, this is the time of your life to go do things like that. It's not that when you, know, you have three kids at home and a mortgage, that's not the time to choose adventure sometimes. You know, <laughs> it's, you know, choose adventure when you, you, you don't mind, you know, sleeping on the ground. You don't mind living in a $200 apartment you know, and sharing it with eight people, like, but choose adventure because you never know where those experiences will lead you to that, that, you know, black Friday and processing deer. Like I never thought it would mean that I would develop a game processing line, but because of those life experiences, it put me in a position to be able to be authentic, to be able to develop something that was meaningful. And, you know, because you, 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 you did these things, you're relevant later on, you know, as the owner of a company, I have a lot of opportunity to look through resumes when people are applying for jobs. And there's a few things that I really look for in resumes. One is that you grew up in a farm. Like if you grew up in a farm, I always tell people, I'm like, just put that above the education. Tell me you grew up on a farm, specifically a dairy farm. And I'm really excited about it. You'll get an interview. <laughs> if I find out that you grew up on a farm, you will get an interview no matter what. And there, but there are certain things where like, yeah, I want to know about your education. I want to know about work experience. Yes. But I also want to know like, like what, who you are at your core. Are you somebody who will look for problem solving? Do you have those back, you know, histories in your background that make you, you know, unique in some way. And I'm always amazed at when you really dig into people like resumes and things like that, or cover letters are just so sterile that if you get into this with somebody, you understand what drives and motivates them. It's, and I don't care what it is. I mean, you, you, you crochet could be a really big thing to you. And if you're really into it and you're passionate about it, I will sit and listen to you and understand it. It tells me more about who you are, your character than anything else. And that that's my one piece of advice for folks is just, you know, choose the adventure, get up early, you know, go out and hunt, go out and fish, go out and have these adventures 
they're so important in the development. And I just see that young people who do this evolve much faster than people who choose not to. And, yeah. and, and I, I would, I guess I'm probably preaching the choir when I talk to your podcast listeners that they are those folks already, but I want to reinforce it because I think it makes the complete human being when you choose those things. And I, I just, I'm very passionate, happy to be still very passionate with Volkswagens. I, I have three campers that I'm restoring with my three children right now. So each of them is going through a restoration project. I'm doing it with them. And then we're going to do an epic trip as they get a little bit older. And then those will be theirs to keep as they, as they get older. And that'll be my connection with them. But it, it combines the road trip, the camping, the nostalgia. It combines all those things together. And like I said, I'm pretty passionate about that particular category. Okay, I am like, my brain is buzzing real hard right now because one, I want the listeners to know when I just set up my little story, when I just like set you up to talk about the Volkswagen thing, I did not know all of those things when I said my story. So I was like, wow, <laughs> between the correlations of what I said and that I did not expect that. And that's awesome. Um, just like you working on them and working on the carburetors and like, all of that playing into it went with my story way more than I anticipated. It did. So when, you, when you were mentioning your story, I'm like, wow, this, and I was thinking to myself, I probably know the guy, you know, I, I, I probably know who this is. He probably has like a, you know, sort of nomenclature that he goes through in the, in the Volkswagen society. But, you know, it was just, it, it, it typically though, the, I have not met a Volkswagen person who wasn't a really, outgoing wanting to be with people and sharing their passion it's again G i think jeeps are the same way i'm not a big jeep guy myself but i've noticed there's that cult within the jeeps that just people really get into them and they're you know hey as long as you have a jeep you know they ever see that, that you've been ducked they do that with jeeps where they put a little duck on your on your windshield like i always thought that was kind of neat it just it binds us together and I don't know, things that bind us together that are positive are awesome. I, I love hunting is one of those things, fishing, another one, but finding those passions that tie us together as a society have to be celebrated and embraced. There's enough trying to drive us apart that honestly, the more we can find that pulls us together, the better off we all are. I so agree. So, so, so agree. And I, oh my gosh, I love that so much. And you doing that with your kids is so is so awesome. My, my dad, um, you know, with his mechanic background and everything, he, he just sold a old ambulance that he kind of like gutted the inside and made it into like a camper. Um, and my dad is definitely not trendy by any means or anything, but he just took like scraps of stuff that he had and like a couple like old things and, um, kind of made it a home on the inside. And he, I, I don't think he even did it to be like, cool. You know, he just did what he just used what he had and it looked so neat and he sold it. And, um, I kept telling my parents, I, I was like, you guys could have sold that for probably twice as much. Um, cause I think people are seeking that right now. But that yeah. whole stealth camping movement is, is I I'm, of course it sort of like ties into what I used to do. So I love it. But you're yeah. right. Those old ambulances and things like that, that they, they could be complete stealth setups, but they're really, I mean, the neat thing about ambulances too, low mileage built incredibly well. They're really kind of neat vehicles for stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that 
we used to talk about that. Um, you know, hopefully I get a chance to do that with my dad someday. My parents are actually in the process right now of um, looking for a camper to live in for a while. Um, they, they definitely, they're very protective. I have very, very protective parents. Uh, I, I, I think I stress them out. I think they're getting used to it by now, but um, <laughs> my, but they, but they are, they are, I, they are 100% where my sense of adventure comes from. Cause between, you know, my dad got me in hunting and fishing. Um, my mom is definitely like a hippie wild child. And all we did growing up, we camped a ton every summer, multiple times a year. But, you know, if I had friends over, all I wanted to do was be like, I wanted to camp in my yard. I didn't want to be in the house. Like that was what we did for fun as a family my whole life. And um, I just relate to so much of what you're saying. And my dad and I multiple times have talked about redoing a school bus, you know, uh, making it into mm-hmm. like a livable space. And um, I just love that. I love that you're doing that with your kids. That is super cool. Super cool. Bye. I, just anything that you know brings you together and will you know, kind of last beyond it. It just, I think, if they keep camping, if they enjoy the outdoors, you know, again, I, I know I've kind of harped on a little bit. It's probably a big part of my life, but getting people to unplug from technology and look up and out. It just those things are are so important. And yeah, I'm probably showing my age with some of that because I, I get a little bit antsy about it. But I'm like, please, like we need to take advantage of the outdoors more. We need to, again, uh, one thing I really get concerned about with my kids is problem solving and critical thinking. And I, I think to myself, like, where does that come? Like, you know, how do you develop that? I, I'm a big believer that, you know, being a mechanic, you know, turning wrenches on stuff helps a ton on problem solving, getting outdoors. We talked about the tent and setting up a tent. Those types of things are fun and they really do teach critical thinking on how to analyze a problem and come up with a solution. And even as somebody who runs a, a company, we have you know roughly 200 employees. And I've just found like, I just had a conversation with this morning, just find me somebody who is driven, a critical thinker, and I'll teach them the rest. Like yeah. everything else it, 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 we could teach you. But that drive, the, the the work ethic and the problem solving, if you have that, that just as a core, everything else can come from that. And uh, I, that's one of the reasons why I encourage hunting because I think that has it in it. I mean, that really does teach those skill sets along with camping, hiking, biking, you know, th- those things. It's just a part of the uh, of the activity. Yeah, I agree. And it, the other parts that I was like buzzing about with everything else you said, when you started talking about people and like hiring and all of that, um, up until, you know, really now my, like my, with my full-time job with Outdoor Mentors, I've been a recruiter, a technical recruiter for the last seven years um, and still do some recruiting. So like, you can't see me, but I've just been like nodding my head the whole time because you know, I feel like where I was successful as a recruiter is I love knowing people's stories. And I think that like, I can look at a resume in a couple seconds and understand what they do and what they don't do, you know, but I can help them, especially those who don't know how to showcase themselves very well. I'm pretty good at getting that stuff out and, you know, digging a little deeper, um, which is probably why I like to start a podcast, but I, I totally agree with everything that you said. Um, that was one of my favorite parts of recruiting by far. <laughs> was getting that getting I, that extra layer there <clears throat> I, I would agree i like nowadays i don't come into an interview until usually what much later in the process but when i come in they you know they hand me the resume and i use the resume for their name primarily you know there might be then i almost always go to the bottom 
like, you know, I figured, yeah. hey, you, you wouldn't be in your third interview if you had didn't have the qualifications. So like, I go to the bottom, like, hey, what do you enjoy doing? Like, mm-hmm. and I kind of look, look for that stuff. And I just, I tell you what, like, that is, the, to me, that's the meat and potatoes. Like, mm-hmm. tell me who you are. Are you going to get along with people? Are you, you know, are, are, are you culturally a good fit? And that's, that's the other thing too, is that, I mean, there, there's, I know every single book talks about, any management book talks about culture and how it works within a company. And it's, boy, the older I get, the more I realize how important that is. To find the right people to fit your culture is absolutely critical for that stuff. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So, so agree. So agree. I, you know, and we'll maybe, I don't really want to end this conversation by any means, but uh, I, I, I've seen a lot of stuff lately online, like articles, social media, people sharing this, that, you know, sometimes, some, sometimes people have a hard time with others trying to recruit new hunters, right? Because, you know, sometimes the intention isn't a positive intention. So that that matters, right? So it was the person who's recruiting new hunters doing it from a good, you know, coming from a good place when they do it. Or are they doing it self-righteously kind of, you know, kind of thing. But I've been seeing that a lot about we don't need more hunters. Like, we don't need new hunters, you know. I would agree that we need better ones. That's oftentimes what I see is we need better ones. Um, I would agree with that statement. But what I get stuck on is seeing that so much that people don't think we need new ones. And I, and I, I think of it from the perspective of as someone who like mentors a lot of kids and women, um, it's not for me so much like, cause we need more hunters cause we need more tags cause we need more money for wildlife, which is important. Right. But like for, for me, the outdoors has been like you said, meditation earlier in the podcast, it has been my my mental health, my physical health, something when, you know, life isn't so great, that's there for me on some level. Um, it's something for me to, uh, put my attention into that's healthy. Um, it, it is to, to me, it is so much bigger than like just teaching someone to hunt so they can buy a tag. So then, you know, blah, 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 that whole thing, which again, important, but to me as humans, like we're so stuck in our screens there is an obvious need for, you know, us to feel connected to nature and like helping our mental health and all of those things. So I, I think that's the most important reason to recruit more outdoorsmen and hunters is for like the sake of like humanity, (laughs) which sounds extreme, but that's, that's, uh, that's how I, that's how I view it, you know? I, I see, I, I would, I would personally say, I think, we do need more hunters, but I think the way that you're going about it is the most important thing. We need more representation in hunting. That would be, I am a huge advocate for specifically women minorities getting into hunting. It, it, it will have a huge impact on our society because we begin to identify with people at a more common level. Those things are absolutely huge. But if you want more resources allocated for hunting you want to make sure those preserves are stocked you want to make sure lakes are stocked the more people who vote who are into it 
the more we're going to get attention for our preservation of land or our stocking of fields or our stocking of lakes, because that's the way our system works. Like voters control those things. And I yeah. think it's absolutely yeah. incredibly important for us to be able to do those things. But the, the other thing, we have another line of products called Magic, Magic Baits, the worm bedding and, and things of that nature. Uh, basically, mostly around worms and preserved baits. And if you go to the, if you go to your local hardware store, you'll I'm sure see that product there. But even in the fishing industry, take a kid fishing has been such a huge category. And we are just massive supporters of it. Not just from the standpoint of like, look, we need customers in the future. That's going to be important for us. But if you really like what you do and you want it to live beyond you, if you want a legacy, um, those things are incredibly important. Your legacy doesn't have to be a monument. It doesn't have to be a law named after you. What it can be is just a few people who get passionate about something and pass it on to the next generation to make sure that those ethical types of, you know, hunting, fishing, outdoor use go. I, I've just seen so many positive developments. And I'll go back to just like litter in the woods like that, you know, when I was younger, the amount of sheer amount of aluminum cans in the woods was unbelievable. I really don't see that much anymore. I do not see a lot of waste in the woods. I don't see a lot of side of the road dumping anymore, where it used to be yeah, pretty accepted yeah. to do stuff like that. Today as a society, we frown upon it where we're just like, hey, look, you just don't do that. And those are really positive outcomes that have come from that generational impact on the outdoors. And I think that is a positive thing. And I, I don't know, I just, uh, to me, the more that are involved in it, the better. I, I, I don't even understand why you wouldn't want it, but I do understand that COVID caused a lot of people to begin fishing and hunting again. Yeah. And so maybe finding open land is getting more problematic. I guess I understand from that standpoint, but the more well, people I, who embrace it are huge. Yeah, no, and, I, and I'm with you. And I hope I, I didn't say it wrong. I'm saying that I, I think that we do need more hunters. I absolutely, yes. I absolutely believe that. Uh, I, I just see a lot of people on the other side that think we don't, you know, and um, I see that a lot lately, like uh, articles that people publish and different things like that. Um, and it just kind of like boggles my mind a little um because it because what you said about the legacy part is is what trips me up on that because i agree if you really genuinely love and care about something you, you want it to go beyond you right like even it's it's not just about you as the individual right it's about this lasting forever <laughs> hopefully uh it's an idea it's an idea yeah. that you yes. that, that can be larger than you i i the, again more philosophical than i was thinking about doing but <laughs> i, I I just believe in life. You have to believe in something bigger than you. Yeah, that, I, I don't care. I don't care what it is, but I just find that most people who live a quality life believe in something bigger than themselves. That can, that can be religion. It can be an idea. It can be a number of things that you just need to believe in something bigger than you. It gives you accountability for one thing. And it also understands that I, I, we use a term here a lot. We're stewards of time. And that's, the, I'm a big believer in there. It ties into a legacy, understanding that, you know, for instance, the company Metalware is 102 years old right now. The way I look at it, this is just my time to be at the helm. The company was here before me. It'll be here after me. And I'm just a simple steward of time. I do my best 
during this time period. But if you start looking at it like that and understand that, hey, that's bigger than me, it'll last longer than me. It has raised many of families, fed many of families. Though once you start looking at it like that, you understand the the responsibilities you have, and that's a good thing. If you understand that it's it's not just you and not just this moment, that it's others and it's longer suddenly you make choices based off of good ethical decision basis rather than just the short-term gain that might be just selfish for you. Once people start thinking like that, and that back to hunting can be a really good example of that. Once you understand those things, good choices are made. And from there, better societies are built. And like I said, didn't intend to get that philosophical about it, but it really does, legacies matter. Your input on those legacies matter they're bigger than you. They last longer than you. And hunting is just a really good example of where that works extremely well. Oh my gosh. I love that so much. Stewards of time. I love that. I will, I will, um, carry that and use that (laughs) because I, I, I really, really like that. And that's, um, truly how I feel as well. And, you know, listeners, you just thought this was going to be about meat processing, but you were wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, no, nobody expected the left turn on meat processing, like becoming a steward of time. But honestly, <laughs> when you, if you start, if you start, like, it does all tie together. And it's, and oh, absolutely. I think that's what your podcast does. It, it, it talks holistically about what we're doing as, you know, as, as active outdoors people, in this case, we're talking about game processing, but the, the, the concepts and theories, they apply to a lot broader ideas than that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. Exactly what I'm trying to, you know, get across. And, um, I just have been so since the beginning of starting a podcast, I have been just endlessly grateful for my guests and what I've learned from them and friendships I've developed. And, um, being able to like spread this information and connect people. Uh, it is like beyond words that I can even put together. Like I am just, I'm so grateful for every guest I've had. Like, and that is like a genuine <laughs> statement. Like it has been, um, it has been a really fun ride <laughs> with, with this podcast and, and having these conversations. And um, this is definitely one of those conversations. Like this has been super fun for me. And I am super like hopeful that we can get you on here again. <laughs> I, I I would love it. I've I, I've enjoyed every minute that we've done this so far, and I appreciate the opportunity to pontificate a little bit. That you know, <laughs> these 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 types of things um, help us reflect every once in a while. You know, just when you get in a day to day routine, it's it's really nice to be able to sit back and reflect a little bit sometimes. And I appreciated the opportunity to do that today. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And we will talk to you again. Well, thanks. If there's anything else you need, please reach out. But thank you for having me on again. Thank you so much for being here, Rick. You were incredible. Loved having you as a guest. Thank you. Thank you. And all of you for listening and coming back episode after episode. Appreciate you. Love you. And until next time, get out there. <laughs>